Good morning. So welcome uh, today to the worship of God. We're glad that you're here today. I know that we've got, um, I think, several people out sick today, and about half the church is uh, up learning how to run the sound system. So God's God's provided for uh, for that. But if you'd still like to be involved in that ministry, uh, see uh, see Brian with Nell. And uh, he'll be glad to get you plugged in. Listen, before we uh, before we begin our worship today, I just want to take a moment before the call to worship. I, I got to tell you about our incredible deacons because um, we have this baptism today. We we almost almost were not able to have church today because on Thursday night um, we we lost one of the phases to our electricity coming in. And none of the pumps worked. There was no indoor plumbing or outdoor plumbing or any plumbing. And, uh, and, and our deacons, um, um, Brian Withnell, Craig Lane, and uh, Dave Wilson in particular, were here after midnight, here again, 6 in the morning, working with Novak, making sure that we had power for today. So um, before we do our call to worship, would you join me in just thanking our deacons? Um, we've got uh, an upcoming dinner for Tree of Life that we're hosting on Tuesday, April the 11th, so there's uh, plenty of lead time there. Put that on your calendar. Uh, we uh, need food for that, and we need uh, other help with serving. Um, you can use the link in the grapeseed, or you can see uh, Debbie saying to sign up for that or to see how you can uh, help out. Um, also, let me just point out two other things here. Um, but it was it was uh, it was it was nice today. I taught Sunday school, was uh, teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, and somebody who was attending that said, "Well, this is great. I can't believe we can do this for free here." They, they really enjoyed the class. I want to tell you that the uh, the C.S. Lewis Institute's Fellows Program, which I'm uh, involved with, um, is a, is a year of courses like that. Um, and it's not onerous, it's something that you could do. And what's really great about it is, I can't remember what the program costs, it's like, I think it's like $2,500 for the year, but it's underwritten by donors so that the fellows actually don't pay anything, they're all scholarship. So um, in the back of your bulletin is, uh, this is kind of, the, when it shrunk down, it's hard to read that, or I can't read it anyway, but there's a QR code, and you, that'll take you right to the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, fellows program that will give you some information about that. If uh, if I can answer any questions for you, uh, see me. But I just want to uh, want, want to encourage you to consider that it's uh, really uh, a, a very worthwhile thing to do. The other thing that I want to draw your attention to is our uh, nature care camp um, that's coming up June 26th through the 30th, uh, ages 4 to 10. We're going to need people to uh, to staff that. So. Uh, please, uh, please put that on your calendar and consider helping. The reason why I say that is because we went live with that registration. We're almost full. We've, we've almost got everybody signed up for that uh, coming up in, uh, in June here already. So um, it proved very popular last year. It'll be popular again this year. And, uh, you know, I guess that's the way we do things. Like we, we, we put out an event and we say, okay, people are coming. Where do we get people to staff this year? So, but, but we need your help to do that. So please mark your calendars uh, for that. And we always have a great time. It's always a, a great week. It's just in the mornings, uh, just from, uh, I think it's 8 to noon or 9 to noon. Um, we take the whole day. And uh, we just have a, a wonderful time uh, using, using creation uh, as, a, as a means to point people to the glory of God share the gospel with them. But, um, well, we're excited today that the uh, Underwood family is here and looking for the uh, baptism of uh, little Cammy today. And uh, let's, let's, let's worship God. Let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to do that.
Please rise if you're able for the call to worship. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Father, thank you for this incredible invitation this morning. This morning, we're delighted to accept it. We're delighted to come into your presence. And we pray simply those words from Psalm 19, that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.
be seated. That, that hymn was question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's what that was. What shall we say then? Do we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized were baptized into Christ, uh, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's the standard that God has for us in Christ. And if you're like me, well, you fall short of the glory of God. But God invites us into his presence to confess our sins to him, to seek his grace. And so, uh, as a church, would you pray with me together a prayer of confession, then I'll give you some opportunity to seek God silently. Father, because the body is one, I participate today in this baptism. And as I do, I recall my own baptism and its summons to faith. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to put on Christ and follow him. Take a few moments to seek God. This is the promise of God to those who come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. God says through his prophet, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God has washed us clean in Christ. As we prepare to give back to God his tithes and our offerings, I want to remind us of that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that says, We are to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I think it's, it's a good reminder, it's an important check on our hearts if we think about how we're giving, whether that's reluctantly or under compulsion. Because I think if we do it that way, it signals to us why we're actually giving. We're giving because we feel like we have to, that... We're contributing something to God. And in reality, when we give our tithes and offerings, it should be a response, a response of thankfulness. It's not that we are buying anything, that we're giving anything to God that he needs, but it's a response to what he has already given to us. And so with that, will our deacons come forward?
ask you as believers, what is it that you as a Christian believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. We are uh, delighted today to uh, baptize Campbell Marie uh, Underwood, uh, covenant child. And if you come from a uh, tradition that uh, doesn't baptize the children of believers, um, then we're going to be talking about that a little bit later, and, and hopefully you'll understand better why we do that. But I'm going to ask the Underwoods if they would bring Campbell. Can I hand these to you? Um, And she's a show. <laughs> the Lord Jesus instituted baptism as a covenant sign and a seal for his church. It is the solemn sign of admission of those who are baptized into the visible church. Baptism signifies the Lord's claim upon us and calls the person baptized to faithfulness in Christ and to grow into all the privileges and obligations of the covenant. Teaching that we and our children are born in sin, baptism signifies and seals that cleansing from sin comes to us only through the death and the resurrection of Christ. It summons us to faith, to death to sin, to resurrection to newness of life by virtue of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because the blessings of the covenant are the gracious provision of the triune God who is pleased to claim us as his own, we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, although our little children don't understand these things yet, nevertheless, they're to be baptized. For the promise of the covenant is made to believers and to their children. In the Old Testament, God declared to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your children after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your children after you. So God commanded that children born into the covenant be given the sign of circumcision. And this covenant is the same in essence in both the Old and the New Testaments. Indeed, the grace of God for the comfort of believers is even more fully manifested in the New Testament. God does not therefore rescind the covenant promise to believers and to their children in the New Testament, but rather he affirms it. He declares through his apostle, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Moreover, our Savior admitted little children into his presence. He blessed them and said, of such is the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, no less than in the Old, the children of believers born into the church have an interest in the covenant and a right to its seal and to the outward privileges of the church. In the New Covenant, baptism has replaced circumcision as the covenant sign. And thus, by the covenant sign of baptism, the children of believers are distinguished from the children of the world and are solemnly and joyfully received into the visible church. The Church of Jesus, as solemn vows are about to be made before you, and you're about to witness the covenant sign, you who are baptized will do well to take this occasion to reflect upon your own baptism. Christ has put his name and his claim upon you. He calls you to be repentant of your sins 
to confess your faith before men and to live in newness of life to God, who sealed his covenant by the blood of his own son. Now, Garrett and Kelly, do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore subject justly to God's condemnation, yet they're set apart from the children of the world for his call and promise by God's covenant of grace, and as children of the covenant ought to be baptized. Do you promise to teach diligently to Campbell the principles of the Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of our church? Do you promise to pray regularly with and for Campbell to set an example of piety and godliness before her? Do you promise to endeavor, by all the means of God's appointment, to bring up Campbell in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, exhorting her to faith in Christ in which she's being raised, and encouraging her to embrace all the blessings of the, and the obligations of the covenant? Let's pray. Father, the Lord Jesus instituted baptism told us to go into all the world to make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that you've commanded. And so, Father, as we apply this covenant sign of baptism today, Lord, may that be the beginning, the start, of uh, seeing through the discipleship of uh, little Campbell of teaching her to observe all that you've commanded. Father, as she's brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, may we have the joy of seeing her confess her faith in the Lord Jesus. And Father, uh, to be then a witness to your promise and seal that to a thousand generations you show your love to those who love you and keep your commandments. To that end, we pray that your blessing would be upon this child and this family. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you come by me? You gained some weight since the last time I held you. What's the name of this child? Campbell Marie, as a minister of the gospel, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, as this child has been baptized and is a member of Christ's visible church, the whole congregation is obliged to love her and receive her, for you are members of one another. Christ claims this little child as his own and calls you to receive her in love. Therefore, you ought to commit yourselves to God to assist this child and her parents in Christian nurture, by godly example, by prayer, and encouragement in our most precious faith. Because this child is not the charge of her parents alone, but of all of you as well. God bless you. And Kelly. Let's go before our God in prayer now. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you first for Cammie's baptism that we just witnessed. For through this baptism, Father, we see this promise, as Pastor Hammond just told us, the promise that you gave to your people through Abraham when you pledged to him that I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And Father, when we stop and 
consider the import of these words, we can but praise you for your love and care and faithfulness. For you made this promise to a sinner, to someone who had transgressed your law, and yet you chose to extend your grace and promise to him. And not only to Abraham, but also to his descendants as well, to the people of Israel, and now to your church. And as we sit here this morning as members of your church, we can know with assurance that you will not withdraw your covenant from us. And Father, we rejoice in what your covenant entails, for through it you promise to be God to Abraham and to his offspring. Though our society talks as though each of us can be independent, in fact, none of us can live without serving a God. So many around us serve false gods, the gods of self and achievement and self-gratification and influence, these faceless idols that are no less pernicious than the statues of ancient civilizations. But, Father, you have promised to be our God, that you would deign to be the one whom we worship and adore, Father. This is an immense treasure. We know of no one like you, for no one can compare with you, the one who is self-existing, who is the creator of all things, the one who is so immense that we cannot grasp your greatness in our understanding, which is limited to thinking in terms of time and space. And not only that, but you are also the one who has chosen to have a personal relationship with each one of your children. For you have called us to pray to you, and you, through your Son, atone for our individual sins. Father, we rejoice this morning that you are our God. And we ask that Cami and each child and adult here who has not yet professed faith in you would do so, for you promise not to turn away any who seek you. Father, we pray for your church as well this morning. We rejoice with Mike and Lily, who have been missionaries in Asia, for the news of this man who has recently been ordained to the ministry there. We ask that you would give him and his family and those he is serving with faith and perseverance in the work to which you have called them. Father, we hear of persecution and trials there, but we also hear of a great harvest of many who are turning to you. Through this time of testing, purify your church and cause each believer, to find hope in you and your kingdom. Here in the United States, we pray for Nate and Anna Strom's congregation in Wisconsin. Be with them as they begin meeting in this new facility and use them to be a light to those in the immediate vicinity. And we continue to pray for our witness here that you would help us show your love to our neighbors and friends and colleagues. And for those without a church community, we ask that our ministries like the website and live stream would be resources to help them find a church and worship with your people. Father, we bring before you our needs as well as you have instructed us. We continue to pray for physical healing for those who are ill. We ask that you would heal Rodney and Ransom as they recover from their surgeries. We pray for Michael's mom that you would heal her as well and restore her speech and that you would be with this whole family as they try to support her. We pray for those with seasonal illnesses that you would bring them back to full health. We also pray for those with longer-term and often debilitating conditions for Leslie, for Caitlin, and Grace, for Jean, uh, for any others who are in these circumstances. Give each of them the strength that they need, Father, each hour. And when they or any of us are struggling to hold on to hope in you, when we cannot see beyond our circumstances, Father, remind us of this truth that your Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For though in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Help us not lose heart, but hold fast to this promise that you will not forsake us. As we have witnessed Cammie's baptism this morning, we pray again that you would work salvation in her heart and in the hearts of anyone here who does not know you. We pray the same for Michael and Julie's baby, that even now you would cause him to turn to you. 
And Father, we pray as well for Garrett and Kelly and for all of us who are parents that we would bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. We confess that we often fail to know what this means in practice, and even when we do know how we ought to parent, we too often fail because of a lack of patience and grace. Give us both wisdom and stamina to point our children to you, the only Father who is infinite in love and who never fails. We also pray for those in authority, as you've instructed us to, that they would govern wisely. We pray this morning for the governors in this region, for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia and Wes Moore in Maryland and Jim Justice in West Virginia. And we pray for peace as well throughout our world in places like Ukraine and for physical recovery in places like Turkey and Syria. Father, as we worship you this morning, we thank you again for your promise, which we have seen fulfilled in our own lives to be God to Abraham and to his offspring, the church. Thank you that you are our God, that you not only allow but invite us to bring our request before you, that you have instructed us how we ought to pray. And so, Father, we bring these needs before you this morning, praying as Jesus has taught us. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you're able to, please rise as we prepare to hear God's word. In the 16th century, there was a treatise that was written by a Polish mathematician and astronomer, really upset the apple cart. 
The mathematician's name was Copernicus, and his treatise questioned the obvious. See, it's obvious, right, that the earth stands still, just sitting here in space, and the sun, the moon, the planets, they all go around it. Obviously, the earth stands still, right? If it were moving, you would know it. Everybody knows that when they're moving. They walk along, they know they're moving. They ride on a horse, they know they're moving. They ride in a cart, they know you're moving. If you're moving, you know it. Obviously, the earth isn't moving. And obviously, the sun moves. Just look at it, right? You ever watch a sunset? You can actually watch it go down below the horizon. It moves within perceptible time. You can watch the sun move. It's obvious. But Copernicus noticed that something was wrong. The stars didn't move in the way they should if they were going around the earth, and the, and the math didn't work. What did work, as he worked it out mathematically, was not at all obvious. What did work was that the sun was at the center, and the earth and the other planets moved around the sun. Well, the scientific community, which had accepted Ptolemy's model of the Earth sitting fixed uh, at the center, scoffed. The great titans of the Reformation, Luther and Calvin, called Copernicus a fool. That the Earth stands still at the center was obvious, but it was wrong. The time of the Protestant Reformation, the church began to untangle what was biblical from what was traditional. Now, not all traditions are bad, but if a tradition was seen to run counter to what the Bible taught, it was discontinued. Most of the church retained the ancient practice by that point, the ancient practice of baptizing the infant children of believers. But in England in the early 16th, uh, 1600s, a man by the name of John Smith became the founder of what would eventually become the Baptist churches. And Smith made some observations of the obvious. Throughout the book of Acts, people were baptized upon their repentance of sin, their confession of faith in Christ. It was a, a pattern, Smith noted, that had been set by John the Baptist who would baptize only those who brought forth the fruit of repentance, right? Remember the Pharisees? It wasn't enough that they said they repented. They had to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. It was so obvious. Jesus himself was baptized by John when he was 30 years old, and the phrase, we follow Jesus in baptism, became a liturgical principle that's still expressed in Baptist churches today. And infant children should not be baptized because they can't express faith or repentance. It's just so obvious. It was obvious to me for the first 10 years of my Christian life. And then I noticed something that upset the apple cart. That made me question whether the math of my Baptist understanding really added up. I want to read to you today some passages from Acts chapter 18 and 19. The passages are listed in your bulletin. And um, we could read the whole thing, but it would be long. Uh, Really what I'm doing is hitting the highlights of what's one account here, one story. This is God's word. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. 
though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was great help to those who by grace had believed. Now, while Paul was in Corinth, or while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived back. Whose baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, as we uh, consider your word today, we pray that you would uh, guide us, help us. Lord, we desire to walk carefully after you, uh, to walk in the ways that you've revealed, so help us to do that through Christ our Lord. Amen. It, it's just so obvious. If you begin reading the New, uh, the New Testament, it uh, almost starts with the baptism of Jesus. John is in the wilderness baptizing people. And upon their expression of true repentance, John would baptize them. Therefore, those should be baptized to express faith in the Messiah to come, or that has come now, uh, and bring forth the fruit in keeping with repentance. Since little children can't do that, they shouldn't be baptized. It's right there on the surface of the text. John's baptism is the start of Christian baptism. And if John's baptism is the pattern for our baptism, then being baptized requires of us an expression of faith, an expression of repentance. It's, it's obvious. It's intuitive. And because it's, it's so common sense, there are, are more Baptists, at least in North America, than there are any other segment of Christians. I think it was a, a, a Roman Catholic friend of mine one time who, this was his take on Protestantism. He said that... Uh, he said that, that, that Episcopalians have all the money and Presbyterians have all the brains and Baptists, they have all the people. And, and what our Baptist friends do is, is obvious. It's common sense. It's like, the, it's, it's like the sun going around the earth and the earth standing still. It's just so obvious. But Acts 18 and 19 upset the apple core. Let let me recap the story a little bit here. From Athens, Paul went to Corinth. Corinth is on the uh, on the um, on on the Achaean uh, isthmus that uh, connects uh, um, the the island down there to the mainland of Greece. And there he met two fellow believers, Priscilla and Aquila, and he began uh, working to establish a church there. Eventually, he left and went to Ephesus. And he is at Ephesus only over one Sabbath. He's there for one Sabbath, went to the synagogue, told people that the Messiah had come, that Jesus was the Messiah, that the promises had been fulfilled. They were intrigued. They were interested. They asked him to stay. But Paul had pressing engagements elsewhere. He had to leave. But he said, if it's God's will, I'll come back. And he eventually did make his way back to Ephesus with the goal of continuing to tell them about the Messiah. And to his surprise, when he gets there, there are already disciples there. Because while he was there, a fellow by the name of Apollos of Alexandria came and brought the gospel. And the people there responded to the gospel. Now, I want you to note two significant things in the passage that we've read this morning. The first is Apollos' resume in uh, Acts 18, 24, and 25. Now, it's not really his resume. I guess that it's, that it's Luke's assessment of him. And uh, we're told that, uh, that Apollos is a, a learned man. 
The, 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 the word there indicates a, a lettered man. He had a formal education coming from Alexandria, probably in philosophy, but also in what we would call the Old Testament. It was the only scriptures they had at the time. We're told that he had a thorough knowledge of the scripture, which again, the New Testament hadn't been written, so uh, this is the books that we know as the Old Testament. We're told that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. In uh, Luke's uh, writing in the book of Acts, the way is a reference to Christ and the gospel. Maybe he's thinking about what Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the way. But when Luke speaks about the way, it's the the Christian way, the way of following Christ. And so Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and we're told that he taught accurately about Jesus. And then all of this was bound together in that he had great fervor. He was excited about what God had done in Christ. I'll tell you that Apollos was a great candidate for a church planter. If our presbytery were looking for a church planter and somebody like Apollos showed up, that would be really good news. This is the kind of guy that you're looking for. And, and Luke, in this, in this glowing uh, assessment of Apollos, mentions only one negative. He mentions only one but. It's not an insurmountable one, but it's a but. And the but is this. He says, he knew only the baptism of John. And so we're told that Priscilla and Aquila, when they heard him, invited him to their home to explain to him the way of God more adequately, or you could translate it more accurately. Right? What was lacking in his accuracy of understanding? Well, well Luke tells us he had all of these great things, but he, but he only knew the baptism of John. In other words, he thought that, that, that baptism was John's baptism. And that's confirmed when Paul returns, because Paul, to his surprise, finds believers there. Uh, he had started a work there. He's hoping to finish it, but more, lo and behold, there are believers there already. You know, a lot of times uh, we're told that, uh, that Paul, that would be, if you, you know, look at your New Testament introduction, that Paul uh, planted the church at Ephesus. Looks to me like Apollos planted the church at Ephesus, right? Paul got it started, but Apollos planted it there. And, and Paul, when he finds believers there, he asks them a question, an interesting question in uh, chapter 19 in verse 3. He says, what baptism did you receive? Well, they say John's baptism. That was the only baptism that Apollos knew about. And, and, and look at what Paul says. He says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It, it prepared people for the coming of Jesus. And we're told that on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. They're not, they're not being rebaptized. They're being baptized for the first time with Christian baptism. John's baptism and the baptism that Jesus instituted in Matthew chapter 28 are not the same. And, it, and it's important to underscore that. Baptism is not the institution of John. Baptism is the institution of Jesus when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Paul's words, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, indicates that Christian baptism is not primarily that. That Christian baptism has another significance. And so they're baptized, again, let me say not rebaptized, but baptized for the first time with Christian baptism. Now, if Christian baptism is not John's baptism of repentance, then what is it? Well, simply put, Christian baptism is the sign of the covenant. When God called uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he was not merely calling an individual. Through Abraham, God would establish a whole community. He would redeem a whole people. And, and redeeming a people entails an idea of covenant. It's a word that we find in the Bible a lot. A covenant 
is a, a group of people bound together to the Lord and to each other. And in Genesis chapter 17, after God has called Abraham, he gives Abraham the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. He says this, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. So understand, right, that, that, that Abraham is circumcised as an, as an aged man, right, as a believer. Why? Because he's the first generation. Who's going to apply the covenant sign to him in his childhood? He's the first generation. But afterwards, his descendants were to be given the sign of the covenant at eight days old. Now you say, okay, I, I understand that. But what does any of that have to do with baptism? Well, we've already seen that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. So what is it? How ought we to think of it? Well, um, it might be that Paul gets the credit for establishing the church at Ephesus when it was really Apollos, but Paul really did establish the church at Colossae. And there were two threats to the spiritual well-being at the Church of Colossae, Christian people there. One was paganism, the pervasive paganism. But the other were the Judaizers. Now, what the Judaizers taught was that uh, Christians, in order to be saved, had to observe the law of Moses. They had to observe the dietary regulations. They had to observe the ceremonial uh, regulations. And they had to be circumcised. Now, that idea, if you look at Acts chapter 15, had been brought up at a council of the whole apostles and the elders, and they rejected that idea that people had to be circumcised, that they had to uh, observe the, the dietary uh, restrictions of the law of Moses. But it raises a question, then, of, of how do the apostles think of baptism? And there's an answer to that question in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Because, because Paul here, is, he's writing to the Colossians, there's the threat of paganism on the one hand, but there's the threat of, of Judaizers on the other hand, who are telling people, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. You have to receive that sign of the covenant. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, in him, that is in Christ, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. See, the Judaizers were telling the Colossians that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul, rather than saying, uh, no, you know, covenant signs don't matter anymore or something like that, Paul says to them, but you, but you have been circumcised in that you were baptized. In him, you were circumcised, having been buried with him in baptism. And as circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. See, for Paul, circumcision was the covenant sign before the coming of Christ, baptism, the covenant sign after the coming of Christ, but what they have in common is that they're both signs of the covenant. And as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, baptism is now the sign of the new covenant. What circumcision signified then, baptism signifies now. Now, whereas circumcision was applied only to males, in Christ, Paul tells us there is no male or female. And so both receive the sign of the covenant. But the important thing to underscore here is that baptism is a covenant sign. Listen, baptism does not express my faith. Baptism expresses God's faithfulness. Circumcision did not indicate a person's faith. It couldn't. 
when the person receiving it was eight days old. But what did it signify? It signified God's faithfulness to the covenant, to the promises that he was making. Now, to be sure, baptism calls us to faith, calls us to faithfulness, but baptism even in those who are baptized as adults. It's a misunderstanding to think that it's a sign of the person's faith. It is not. It's a covenant sign. It's the sign of God's faithfulness, that he has promised to save a people for himself, and that promise will not be rescinded. It will, be, uh, it will endure through all generations. Abraham was circumcised as an adult because he was the first generation. So when you go to the New Testament and you see people being baptized as believers, you want to take a guess as to why? Because it's the first generation. Because there's nobody there to baptize them. They weren't raised in a faithful, believing home. And they're the first generation of Christians. As with circumcision, so with baptism. The sign of the covenant is applied to those who are born within the household of faith. A circumcision wasn't applied to the, to the Philistines, to the Chaldeans, to the Hittites. It was applied to those who were born within the household of faith. Baptism is applied to the children of Christian parents who will bring them up in the knowledge of the Lord. It's the sign that they are to be raised and are being raised in a community that, along with their parents, will call them to respond to Christ's promises in his covenant in faith. That's why we baptize our children. The beliefs of our Baptist friends seem so obviously true, just like it seems so obviously true that the earth just sits here motionless and doesn't move. And let me tell you that those beliefs would be true if John's baptism was Christian baptism, but it's not. Those beliefs would be true if baptism expressed my faith, but it does not. For anyone who receives it, we've baptized people here uh, in their older years, in their adulthood, upon confession of their faith because they were not raised in Christian homes or raised in places where they were baptized. And they were baptized upon their confession of faith. Even for them, that baptism did not signify their faith. It signified God's faithfulness. It's the sign of the covenant. Garrett and Kelly, baptism is not a sign of Cammie's faith. But, but nor, let me be very clear, because uh, at times in the history of the church, there's been confusion about this. Nor is baptism a talisman, some kind of magical amulet. You apply it, and then everything's okay. It's a sign for you to bring her up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That means instructing her at home. It also means making sure that she and you are at church for worship, for Sunday school, for instruction in the Christian faith. Because baptism is the beginning of the Christian life. It's not the end. Right? Some people think baptism is the end. Okay, well, I've accomplished that. You know, there were three pastors. Have I told you this before? Three pastors from different traditions. And they had, you know, differences. But the one thing they had in common is they all had a rodent problem at their churches. Right? And, uh, and so they'd gotten together for coffee, and they found that they'd all solved the rodent problem um, in, uh, in different ways. So the one, you know, they asked the one pastor, well, how, you know, how, what did you do about it? He said, well, I... Just hired a pest management company. They came, took care of it, no more rodents. That's, oh, that's good. You know, what did you do? The other pastor said, well, I, he said, I went to the local animal shelter, adopted two cats. They live at the church. No more animals, no more rodents. And uh, it says the third pastor, you know, you got rid of your rodents too, right? How did you do it? He goes, oh, it was simple. He said, he said, I just rounded up all the mice and baptized them, and then I never saw them again. And, you know, sadly, sometimes that's true. Because people look at, like, baptism as an end. That, like, okay, I've, I've finished that, I've done that, I've accomplished that. It's not an end. 
at the beginning. Um, that story is, is funny, sadly, because it rings true. Baptism is not magic. It's not an end in itself. In fact, it's not the end at all. It's just the beginning. Baptism is the sign of the covenant. Make sure that in Cammie's life, she has full knowledge of what that covenant is, what it means, and that God calls her to respond to it. And we pray together. Father, um, thank you for this day. Uh, Father, for your grace and your goodness to us. Uh, What we've witnessed today, Father... um, irrespective of us individually, is the promise of your promise uh, held out to your people. It's the sign of the covenant through all generations that will never be rescinded. That, that, that there it is, held out for us, your grace to all who, who will respond. And, and Father, this, this child has been born into this family, born into this church, where, Father, she will, unlike so many others, will hear the gospel of Jesus, will hear the obligations that her God places upon her, and the great cost that her God went to to redeem and to restore her. And, Father, would you pour your grace out upon this little one that she would believe, and, Father, your grace upon us that we would too. For we ask it in Jesus' name.